So we are uh, <clears throat> almost, we're a little bit over halfway into this series that I'm doing on the Ten Commandments. And uh, part of the reason that I wanted to do a series on the Ten Commandments is when I do sermon planning, um, I will look at various parts of Scripture, and I'll look at uh, parts of Scripture that I think are maybe ignored for one reason or another. And so I like to preach on books that are somewhat obscure in the Bible. You know, sometimes I'll preach from a book and you'll go, hey, I didn't even know that was a book in the Bible, you know? Anyway, and uh, so uh, anyway, I'll, I'll jump around and do different things to highlight different parts of Scripture for different reasons. Um, the reason I wanted to preach the Ten Commandments is because in our culture, the Ten Commandments have become incredibly politicized, right? And, and so whenever you hear about the Ten Commandments on CNN or Fox News or wherever you happen to read about them, it's always part of this, you know, political debate between conservatives and liberals, and it's about, you know, X, Y, and Z and all this different kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and so what ends up happening is you have a perception of the Ten Commandments that instead of being informed by Scripture and instead of being informed by the work of Christ, they get informed by the Republicans, right? Or they get informed by the Democrats or they get informed by somebody else, right? And, and so I wanted to unpack the Ten Commandments because I felt that uh, this would be a great opportunity to at least allow you to see them as God would have intended them to be seen, at least to the best of my ability to do that, and as God uh, might have had Jesus um, unpack these Ten Commandments as well. Two things very quickly. The first half of the law, or the first half of the Ten Commandments, uh, are really Godward in their direction. And so it's, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't have any idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Honor the Sabbath, right? These are all essentially God-word commandments. And what's interesting about these is <clears throat> that, uh, that at the end of the day, each of these things for believers and for unbelievers, if we practice these things, there'd be a, a radical and yet humanizing uh, organization of our lives underneath those first four commandments. You know, if you have no other gods before God, then all of a sudden what happens is, is God is more important to you than your spouse or your children or your job or the athletic team that you follow. And everything has its proper place in the economy of God. Everything makes sense, and you become a healthier, happier human being. Now, in the second half of the Ten Commandments, these are manward or human-focused, if you will. And, and so uh, essentially what's happening in these commandments is we're learning what it looks like for us to be truly human in relation to our brothers and sisters that live in this world. And one of the things that I've been making the point over and over again is that as we go through the Ten Commandments, again, regardless of what your perception of them has been up until this point, the Ten Commandments actually paint a picture of reality or paint a picture of the world or paint a picture of society that, believe it or not, is exactly the society that you deeply desire. The Ten Commandments paint a picture of the world as deep down as you wish it actually really were, right? Now, today we're going to be looking at these, uh, the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is, uh, is one that there's been some confusion over. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But the Sixth Commandment is the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill, right? We're going to get to it in just a moment. <clears throat> but uh, first, I'm going to ask that you join with me and that we would pray. Father, thank you for the men and women, uh, the boys and girls, uh, the young people that are in this room right now. Father, I pray that you would take your word and that you would sink it through our brains all the way down into our hearts, and that by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be truly changed so that we would know you as our Father, our protector, 
that we would know uh, your son Jesus as our Savior and as our substitute. So, Father, this morning, we pray all these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I uh, <clears throat> prepared to preach on the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill uh, or thou shalt not murder, depending on the translation that maybe you've heard, there it's just, unfortunately, too many stories, too many illustrations for me to choose from. Does that make sense? I mean, unfortunately, you can just... Uh, open up CNN's website and find, you know, five different murder stories that are right on the front of CNN. And some of you know that um, my wife and I don't have a TV, so for, we've been married 18 years, and I think we've had a TV for three of those. And so I don't watch TV, so I don't, I don't get the news really filtered to me through a television. I read about it online through various news agencies. And so what happens is sometimes I miss out on some of the drama that television creates around big events. And so it was interesting, this week as I was uh, looking through these different stories uh, that might apply to uh, this commandment, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. And as I was sitting in a coffee shop and I was looking and reading these various stories and looking at the people who had lost their lives in 2013, I'm sitting in the middle of this coffee shop, listening to music, reading these stories, and as I'm reading story after story after story, my, my eyes just really welled up with tears. That happens to me sometimes. I'm a little bit emotional like that. I just have to admit it. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older. I don't know what's going on. Uh, <clears throat> but as I sat there in the coffee shop, you know, I was kind of like, you know, just wiping my eyes a little bit. And, and I started pulling the pictures off of Google Images and just putting them onto my computer screen. And as I did so, I, my heart was just breaking for all these people that lost their lives early, that lost their lives wrongly, these people who were innocent victims of murder. And so what I did is I created just a, a series of pictures that I'm going to put up on the screen here. So um, if you would, this is a, a little girl from Atlanta. Uh, her name is Sasha Ray. She was two years old, and uh, she was murdered um, just uh, earlier this year. And I thought, man, just how horrible and how sad it is that this little girl lost her life. Next slide. These are three of the victims from the Boston massacre. And as I looked at these pictures again, I just was, you know, really became uh, just broken for the tragedy that was suffered, uh, not only by these people, but also the tragedy that their families have had to suffer through. Next picture. Um, This is uh, a a mother and son, Hannah Anderson. If you guys remember the story of Hannah Anderson in the news, this was the mother and son that lost their lives. It's a little picture of them. We got a few more pictures. This is uh, the guy, Shorty Belton, who was killed out in Spokane, Washington, by a couple uh, kids. He was a World War II veteran who passed away just a few months ago. This is Chris Lane, the Australian baseball player who was playing out in Oklahoma, who was shot randomly by these three kids that drove by. And then these are some of the kiddos that lost their lives at Sandy Hook Elementary. And you can just kind of go through these, Louise. You know, but as, as you look at those pictures, again, like I said, I don't, I don't get the news filtered through my television set, so chances are a lot of other of you out there have already shed tears for these people, and, uh, and I just hadn't, I don't think. Um, I'm removed, I think, from some of that, and as I sat there in that coffee shop, my heart just broke for all these people who lost their lives early, who lost their lives wrongly, and, uh, and I was just broken. Now, what's interesting is we get to this, uh, this sixth commandment. As we've gone through the first five commandments, hopefully what, what those commandments have done, hopefully what I've done, is shown each of you how, whether you realize it or not, you've really been guilty of breaking those commandments. And frankly, we're guilty of breaking all these commandments. 
And so when we reach the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, we'll get to that in a minute, um, it's possible that some of you have gone, I can take a deep breath now. Here's one that I know I haven't broken. I'm off the hook on this one. And, uh, and I think what we'll see here in a few moments is that the sixth commandment, this command not to kill or not to murder, is much more than a command not to wrongfully take human life, that it's much more even about protecting and preserving and growing and encouraging human life in those that we find ourselves around. I'm going to begin by reading Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, 1 through 17, or actually 1 through 13. If you'll read along with me, if you will, they'll be up on the screen. Now, this is where the Ten Commandments are, again, stated uh, as Moses has Receive them at Mount Sinai. This is the first statement of them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy or set it apart. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. All right, so here, verse 13 is where we, <clears throat> we're ending today with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. Now, first question I want to ask is this, what's the exact, the narrow, what's the, what's the particular meaning of this sixth commandment in its context, right? So that's, I think, what we, we need to find out here, whether you realize that or not. Now, I was driving uh, down Riverside Parkway the other day, and there was a guy that pulled up next to me <clears throat> driving some sort of uh, truck or SUV. And on the side of it was a bumper sticker that said, essentially this, it said, the King James Bible, uh, if it ain't King James, it ain't the Bible, or something like that. Does that make sense? Some of you have seen these before. And so part of the reason for the confusion around the Sixth Commandment is because the King James, which was translated in 1604, uh, originally had the Sixth Commandment as, thou shalt not kill. And to be very honest with you, in my brain, when I kind of go through the commandments, when I hit the sixth commandment, I always think of it in terms of thou shalt not kill. Now, the problem is uh, that as we have uh, gotten new uh, abilities in translating the Bible, as we've done more etymological work, we've realized that the word there that's used in the sixth commandment isn't the word for generic killing, but rather is the word for murder, okay? And so, essentially, all of these new uh, versions of the Bible, the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, the NAS, the whole Bible, all these new Bibles, they translate the Sixth Commandment as, thou shalt not murder. And that's actually a much more correct uh, understanding of that Sixth Commandment. Now, what's interesting is 
uh, one of the things that has happened is that because of the way the the uh, sixth commandment has been translated uh, by the new King James, or sorry, by the King James, there were certain people who said, "Well, this must apply to war, and therefore, you know, Christians shouldn't be involved in war because we shouldn't be involved in killing." You know, it was also applied to capital punishment wrongly. And so Christians said, well, we shouldn't be involved with capital punishment because, you know, Sixth Commandment says thou shalt not kill. People even went so far as to say we shouldn't kill animals because, you know, the Bible shouldn't, says we shouldn't kill, right? But what's interesting is that, uh, that the word that's used here in the Sixth Commandment is a Hebrew word, and it's pronounced ratzak, essentially. It's used 49 different times in the Old Testament, and every single time that it's used, it's either used to refer to murder or to what we would probably refer to as manslaughter. And when those other things, like capital punishment and war, were used, there's always a Hebrew word uh, that's it's, it's called muth, and that's always used in those different circumstances. And so it's really clear that the understanding of the first commandment, the literal narrow understanding, is that what's being prohibited here is, uh, is taking human life, in particular, wrongly, right? Either via murder or through manslaughter. Let's look really quickly at this idea of taking human, human life uh, via murder. Now, there are any number of different uh, definitions for murder, but essentially what comes out in uh, the Bible is that murder, according to the Bible, is killing somebody with malicious intent or it's killing somebody with premeditated malicious intent. Here are a couple of verses really quickly that sort of refer to this. Look at Numbers 35, verse 16. If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer, the murderer is to be put to death. And what's being communicated in Numbers 35 is that you're hitting somebody with this iron object. You're striking somebody with intent. Okay, Your intention is to, is to actually to kill them. Uh, there's a second verse, Numbers 30, verses 20 through 21. If anyone with malice, a forethought, okay, that's the premeditated malice side of it, shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another, with their fists so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. This, again, is an instance of premeditated killing with malicious intent. And so one of the things that the Sixth Commandment very clearly teaches is that we should not kill someone with malicious or premeditated malicious intent. Now, again, boom, that's the first part of it. Chances are some of you are sitting out in the room this morning going, check, I've got it, never done it, not really tempted to do it, I'm good, Okay. You need to know that because it's one of the Ten Commandments, that it exists for a reason, right? And that there may have been many of other people who have thought that would never be something I'd be possible of, but it's one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus will unpack it for us a little bit later. The second understanding of this word, ratzak, is manslaughter. And again, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. So if you've got a lawyer buddy out here, you can ask them about manslaughter. But here's essentially what Numbers 35 verses 22 to 23 communicate. Now, first of all, manslaughter, generally speaking, is to kill someone accidentally, and it's primarily due to carelessness. So murder is killing somebody on purpose with maliciousness. But the second thing that the Sixth Commandment is doing here is it's actually protecting life more broadly and saying you also shouldn't ever kill somebody because you're being careless. Listen to Numbers 35, verses 22 through 23. But if, without enmity, someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally, or without seeing them, drops on them a heavy stone enough to kill them. So you're up on a roof, you're building something, you drop a stone off the side, you hit somebody back in their context, and they die. Then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, etc., etc., 
what's being communicated here at this word ratzak is that it's not just murder that God is prohibiting, but it's, it's killing somebody accidentally due to carelessness. Does that make sense? Now, very quickly, we've moved into a category that really helps us interpret this differently. Now, again, chances are none of you have ever killed anybody on purpose. I hope not. If you have, please report to me afterwards. Let's talk. Uh, secondly, but, but it's possible, unfortunately, that, uh, that it's much more common that people would die in our culture uh, due to carelessness on behalf of someone else. I think just automatically about drunk driving. And, and think about the people that lose their lives every year due to the carelessness of people who are drunk drivers. Uh, there's a book that I just uh, ordered. Um, a buddy of mine referred it to me. It was written by a friend of his. Um, this, uh, the man who wrote the book is Jerry Sitzer. He is a, a, a theology professor at a college um, out west. But uh, he wrote this book, and uh, the book that he wrote was in response to the fact that he uh, lost his mother, his wife, and one of his daughters uh, in one drunken driving incident. They were driving back from a powwow in uh, northwest Washington state when they were hit by a drunk driver who swerved across the lane going 85 miles an hour, hit their minivan. Jerry and his three other children survived, uh, but the mother, the grandmother, and his daughter who were sitting up in the front of the vehicle all died in this one moment. Just tragic. The reason that my friend actually referred this book to me is, uh, is because it's really a story of the healing and the forgiveness, as Steve mentioned this morning, that this man, Jerry Sitzer, has been able to offer to the people who took away three generations of the women in his family due to the carelessness of drunken driving. That's exactly what the sixth commandment is getting at here. It's getting at the fact that we should not only not be involved in taking life, human life, maliciously or through premeditation, but even what it's saying is, that we shouldn't take someone else's life due to carelessness on our part. Again, it's not about capital punishment. It's not about war. It's not about killing animals. You could create those arguments elsewhere. But what it's about doing is saying you need to protect physical human life wherever you have the opportunity to do so. Now, let me stop here for a second and say it's very clear as we've gone through the Ten Commandments so far that every single place that we have a commandment, Jesus takes that commandment and he broadens it and he deepens it. And so where we're going to go next is we're going to ask the question, what are the deeper implications of the sixth commandment? How does Jesus broaden it? How does Jesus deepen it? Because really, we've just gone through this idea of don't murder and don't manslaughter, and like 99.2% of you are going, not, not worried about that. Here's where Jesus takes it to our hearts and, uh, and really begins to unpack our own uh, perception of this much more deeply. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 finds us in this passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus essentially has already called the 12 disciples. It's one of his first main teaching times. He's standing up on this hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching in a way that is revolutionary to those people who are hearing them. Listen to what he has to say in verses 21 through 24. He says this, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder. Okay, Sixth commandment. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And so all of a sudden, what Jesus does is he takes the sixth commandment and he goes, hey, it's much more than just a physical side to this commandment. There's an emotional uh, application to this commandment as well. Moving along, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a term that basically means idiot. Uh, I think literally it means senseless one. 
So anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, again, it's a translation might be to say, you ignoramus or you, you, know, you dummy or whatever, an uneducated one, that you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And so what Jesus does is in one fell swoop, he says, this commandment is about a lot more than taking physical life. It's, there's an emotional angle to it. There's a psychological angle to it. There's even a relational angle to it. You're to protect and preserve and encourage life wherever you possibly can. Look really quickly at this idea of emotional murder. I, I probably could have termed it emotional malice. Uh, but, but read again with me if you really will really quickly. It says this, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And so Jesus moves the sixth commandment from the physical realm into the emotional realm where he makes it clear that even hating or harboring bitterness towards someone is every bit as damning as murder. That's what Steve was getting at this morning. If you heard Steve up here, he kept talking about forgiveness. And that's really the idea here is that what this uh, commandment is talking about is it's saying if, you, if you're angry, if you're harboring angry, anger, if you're harboring bitterness towards someone who has harmed you, whether it was legitimate or illegitimate, that, uh, that that's just as bad as committing physical murder. It's just as damning as murder. Listen to the words of 1 John 3, verses 14 through 15. They say this. John reiterates Jesus, this thought that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount where he's unpacking the Sixth Commandment, where he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. So John is basically saying, when you pass from death to life, when you've been reborn, when you've been regenerated, God gives you this brand new ability in response to the gospel, in response to the Holy Spirit creating in you a new person, the ability to love now instead of hate. He goes on to say, because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. In other words, what First John is saying, he's saying, if you're harboring bitterness, if you're harboring anger, then it's a possible sign that, uh, that you're not really reborn. Does that make sense? Because that what, G, what Steve was talking about this morning in, in leading us through worship is that one of the things that characterizes believers is we realize just how much we've been forgiven of in Jesus. We realize the cost, what it cost Jesus, what it cost his father for Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins, to give his life as a ransom for our sins. And so all of a sudden, Christians' way of relating to other people is radically altered so much so that where we could hold and maybe even be justified in holding bitterness and anger towards someone else, instead we love, instead we forgive. Now, up until this point, it's very possible that each of us could rightfully claim innocence in regard to the sixth commandment, but not anymore. Jesus has taken that option away from us very intentionally. By the way, Jesus is not talking here about righteous anger, but he's talking about good old-fashioned, that person better quit tailgating me anger? Or can you believe what she said about me? Anger. Or I hate my father and mother for what they did to me. Anger. Jesus has left every single one of us no option other than to say, 
If that's the application of the sixth commandment, then I've broken it. Then I'm guilty of emotional murder. What about the second thing he gets into, this idea of psychological malice or psychological murder? Look up at the screen. We'll read another section. Again, Jesus is unpacking the sixth commandment. This is in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, anyone, or again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or you fool, or you ignorant one, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is talking about here is tearing someone down psychologically by saying, you're an idiot, you're an ignoramus, or you're stupid. Now, it's very clear that anybody who's ever been through junior high, anybody who's ever had a brother or sister, right, anybody who's ever been in a fight with a spouse, chances are this is an area that you're familiar with. Chances are this is an area that you might be guilty in. This type of psychological malice or murder can be done through words, right? I have a good friend who's a pastor today in the PCA. He's actually a pretty well-known pastor. He grew up in a pretty icky home, pretty messed up home. And his mom used to just just tear his dad to shreds. She used to belittle him. She used to uh, emasculate him. She used to just be cruel to him. And my buddy, who at the time was a year younger than me, I actually had the chance to to disciple this young guy, um, would come and tell me the things that he heard his mom say to his dad, just tearing him down. And uh, he, I, I, this, this one thing that he said, or that his mom said, really sticks out in my memory. He said that my mom and dad were fighting the other day, and my mom, who's constantly attacking and assaulting my dad's manhood, said this to my dad, I wish I'd married a real man, like a trucker. Okay, now that sounds kind of humorous, <clears throat> but you can imagine in a home where a husband and wife are fighting. You can imagine a home where the wife doesn't respect her husband, right? Maybe where the husband doesn't respect his wife. You can, you can just imagine for a moment the pain that that was intended to inflict psychologically on my buddy's dad. Does that make sense? I mean, what, that, what his wife was trying to do was she was trying to psychologically injure him as much as she possibly could you know, there are all these books that are written now um, that talk about a man's primary needs and a woman's primary needs. And a man's primary need is to be respected. And what she was doing is she was chopping the root of his psychology at the very base of his tree. So this psychological murder or malice can be done with words by that type of statement. It can be done when children who learn this very early say to their mom, who has said, no, you can't watch TV anymore or you can't have any more candy, you've all heard children say to a mom or to a dad, I hate you, right? When I was a youth pastor in St. Louis, my favorite family in our whole church, I can say it now, it's been a long time, they were great, Um, wonderful, wonderful family, they had kids in our youth group, but their oldest son uh, had Down syndrome, and uh, and one time he said to his mom, he said, I hope you and dad get divorced. She wouldn't let him have something, and so he said, I hope you and dad get divorced. And his intent in that statement was to hurt his mom, was to injure her. And uh, her response to him was, well, if dad and I get divorced, who do you want to live with? And she said her son thought for a few minutes, and he goes, well, I want to live with you. (laughs) So it's kind of cute. He was trying to hurt his mom psychologically. He was trying to do some malice to her. But at the end of the day, he knew who cooked him, you know, eggs in the morning and made his birthday cake. Anyway, so this type of psychological malice or murder can be done with words, but it can also be done through silence or refusing to give relational access to someone who loves you, right? Unfortunately, we do it to our spouses sometimes where we shut them out 
and play the quiet game, and our intent is to hurt them psychologically. We can do it to our children at times. We can ignore them when they've displeased us. If you have a roommate in college uh, or a boyfriend in college or a girlfriend in college, by shutting out that person who loves you, you can do psychological damage and malice and murder to that person. It can be done through an eye roll and a look that says, I can't believe I married you. You can say through that same eye roll and look without using words, I can't believe that you're my child. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying physical murder Physical manslaughter is one thing, but there's a deeper implication and a deeper application of this. It's about giving life to people emotionally instead of trying to hurt them and kill them emotionally. It's about giving life to people psychologically instead of being malicious and trying to murder them psychologically. This is a huge commandment. I was telling David earlier, like, you know, whenever I do these, uh, the various Ten Commandments, I, I find myself going, man, you could write a book on each of these. You know, there's so much more here that I can't even go into this morning. So I'm going to leave you with three very quick applications before I end. The first one is in regards to the, the physical element of the sixth commandment. How do we practice the sixth commandment when none of us probably are murdering anybody and none of us are involved in manslaughter? One of the ways that we can practice the sixth commandment is through adoption. You know, it's funny, I, I thought about this a little bit and I thought, well, If the command is not to take physical life, that's the negative side of it. What's the positive side? And the positive side is that we would be involved as believers in giving physical life. And so adoption is one of the ways that we do that. It's funny, as I got online to read about adoption a little bit over the course of the last week, half the articles I read were negative. And they were written in ways like, what's the deal with all the Christians adopting kids, you know? And why in the world do Christians continue trying to save the world through adopting people? And one of the things that I realized is it's it's an application of the Sixth Commandment. When you realize that God has given you life by adopting you into his family at the cost of his own son's life, then all of a sudden, this picture of adoption, there's no clearer picture of the gospel in the world that we live in. And even if you don't feel called to adopt one day or right now, you can support a family who is adopting a child. You can do support a child through Compassion International. There are any different number of ways that we can obey the Tenth Commandment by giving life and adoption or supporting adoption is one of them. Uh, another uh, application from this in regards to the emotional element of the Sixth Commandment is forgiveness. That's what Steve was getting at this morning. You know, what Jesus is saying is that, uh, you know, if you have anger, if you're harboring bitterness towards someone that's wronged you, then what you're really doing is you're committing emotional murder against them and you're committing emotional suicide inside yourself. The way out of both of those is forgiveness. It's by offering forgiveness to those people who have wronged you, who have sinned against you, who have hurt you. And again, I don't mean to belittle the hurt you've experienced because some of us grew up in homes where our parents hurt us terribly. Some of us had coaches that wronged us terribly. Some of us had siblings that wronged us horribly. There are any number of different ways in which this plays out. I don't mean to belittle that, but what I do mean to do is to say that the way out of harboring anger is to offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us. Thirdly, how do we go about applying the psychological aspect of the sixth commandment? Again, if the negative that Jesus talks about is don't say, don't call somebody a fool, don't call somebody an ignoramus, well, the positive side of this would be to actively encourage other people, to build them up psychologically, right? It would be to encourage your husband, and rather than cutting him down when he displeases you, to figure out how to, to build him up. 
to, to look at a coworker who maybe has been struggling and not doing so well recently and to try to build them up, to find a fellow student at Shorter or at Barry and to encourage that student. I remember when I was like a sophomore at Covenant College, the basketball team, the women's basketball team, had this thing where they filled out note cards and they wrote encouraging notes to other students on campus. I still remember this girl walking up to me in the gym one day. I didn't even know her. She handed me a card and on it was written an encouraging note. I still remember it to this day and I'm 41. Does that make sense? Like that gave me some little bit of psychological life to know that somebody was thinking about me and noticing something good about me. You can do it to your children. You know, there's supposed to be a five to one ratio or a seven to one ratio of, uh, of positive to negative things. That's what all the child psychologists say. I don't know about you guys, but I am not there on my ratio. Does that make sense? And uh, I think there are a thousand different ways we can actively encourage and build others up psychologically. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but what just happened was we took a look at the Old Testament. What does it mean not to kill or not to murder? We took a look at the New Testament where Jesus unpacks it emotionally, psychologically. You could even go further and say relationally that Jesus is saying, give life, don't just take it away. But I haven't yet uh, done anything other than give you a to-do list. All I did so far was say, hey, go do this instead of that. Okay? What makes us a Christian church is that Jesus is our hero and Jesus is our substitute. In other words, he has done what we cannot do for ourselves. And so let's end with Jesus. Now, I could read any number of different verses, which I will, that teach you some true things about who Jesus was in terms of giving life. John 6 says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We understand it in retrospect that what Jesus was saying is, I'm really going to die so that you can have spiritual life. We could look at John 14, 6, where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's the evidence of someone who is not born again. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, that Jesus offers a fullness of spiritual and physical and relational and emotional and psychological life. We could look at where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We could look at all these true story, or verses from Scripture, or we could look at stories of how Jesus offers life. Let's start with the man who we know of as the Gerasene demoniac. This is a guy who was living naked in the tombs on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He had left his family. He had left his friends. He had left his home. He was cutting himself with rocks. He was screaming out day and night. He was freaky. He was breaking chains. He was disgusting. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. Jesus came to him and gave him a new life, and it scared everybody. Here's what Mark 5 has to say about that story. It says this, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When the people from the countryside, when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man, the man who had been naked, the man who had been cutting himself, the man who'd been screaming day and night, the man who broke chains. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Jesus gave him life. He didn't take away his life. He didn't punish him as his sins deserve. He gave him life. What about the man born blind in John chapter 9? Jesus healed this man who had been born blind. He did it on the Sabbath, and so the Pharisees were angry with him. And so they came to the man who had been born blind, and they were trying to get him to essentially say something bad about Jesus, but the man refused to. 
Here's the story or a little bit of it. It says, then they turned again to the blind man, that is the Pharisees who were trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man, that is the man born blind, replied, he is a prophet, at least. Verse 24, he didn't give them the answer they wanted. They came back a second time. They summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. In other words, talk bad about Jesus, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Jesus gave this man new life. It's what he came to do. Last story that we see Jesus giving life. This is the story of a synagogue ruler, a guy who would have been opposed to Jesus because he would have been on the side of the Pharisees. His little girl got sick and was near the point of death. He came to Jesus seeking help, even though he had been an enemy to Jesus. And we'll see that Jesus offers and grants this man and his daughter life. While Jesus was still speaking on the way, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, basically saying, it's too late. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Jesus came to give life. This commandment is about so much more than not taking life. It's about giving life, which is precisely, exactly what Jesus came to do for sheep herders and for fishermen, for rebels, and for the sexually scandalous for demon-possessed men, for blind boys and dead daughters, and for people just like you and me. Jesus still offers new life today, 2,000 years later. For those who acknowledge their addictions, their sins, their brokenness, their failed attempts at self-validation, he offers a life of resting in him, of stopping of stopping, of ceasing. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to strive anymore. It's not up to you to keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments for you. You've got to stop and allow Jesus to fight for you once and for all because whether you know it or not, it's that life, this life under the control and the command and in the rest of Jesus that you desire at the deepest levels of your heart. He came to give you that life that is truly life. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, Jesus refused to let us off the hook in regards to the sixth commandment and instead put every single one of us on the hook. Father, we confess to you, we admit to you that if what Jesus said is true, that we have been unrighteously angry with people 
more often than we can even count. And so, Father, we've broken the sixth commandment. Father, we've, we've done psychological damage with malice to our husbands and wives, to our roommates, to our brothers and sisters, to our friends, to our enemies, Father. We've, we've tried our best to cut them deeply. Father, we've broken the sixth commandment. We have broken relationships all over the, the place, Father. And Father, we realize that, uh, that we'll continue to break the sixth commandment in all those ways. But Father, your son Jesus kept the sixth commandment perfectly, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, every single day, every hour, every minute of his life perfectly on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray today, not in our own righteousness, Father, but instead in the righteousness of your perfect son, Jesus, our substitute. We pray in his name all these things today. Amen.